Smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today, we are continuing our series, Following and Sharing the Way of Jesus. Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. Jesus is not the Savior we expect, but He is the Savior we want. Here's Matt. In the last couple of centuries, we've made incredible scientific progress with lots of benefits flowing from that. One of the reasons is because of the effectiveness of the scientific method in not letting our subjective experience get in the way of objectively understanding things. And in the last century particularly, there's been great advances in applying the scientific method to human beings as persons. So that's seen uh, in fields as diverse as anthropology, economics, psychology, those kinds of things. And quite early in that research, it was demonstrated that emotions can really get in the way of rational understanding. And emotions can get in the way of ethical behaviour. And emotions can get in the way of teamwork. And so there's this stream of thought that's grown in our culture that says that emotions, well, they, they have a place, but, but they get in the way of science and logic and ethics and community. However, as the study of emotions has continued, it has now been clearly demonstrated uh, in the last couple of decades that a lack of emotions also gets in the way. A lack of emotional engagement gets in the way of rational understanding and decision-making. Your logical brain doesn't work properly if you switch off your emotions. A lack of emotional engagement gets in the way of ethical behaviour. If you don't feel what's right and wrong, you're less likely to act right and avoid what's wrong. A lack of emotional engagement gets in the way of teamwork. If everyone's busy not feeling anything, then you feel like no one cares for you. So there's now a great deal of energy being put into dealing with emotions well. Uh, one label for this is emotional intelligence. I don't know if you've been subjected to emotional intelligence assessments in your workplace, but that's one of the kind of buzz things that's going around. Uh, not that I can see anything wrong with that. It's just, uh, well, it's, it's great that people have finally figured out that this is a thing. So as I understand it, emotional intelligence is perceiving and incorporating emotion effectively. So that includes being aware of our own emotions, not suppressing them, not letting them run our lives, but incorporating them effectively in my whole self. It includes being aware of other people's emotions and engaging with their emotions effectively. So I want to suggest that today's Bible passage fits into that area of concern. Today we're looking at Matthew 11 verses 1 to 19, which is all about expectations and desires. It's about understanding the difference between what we expect and what we want. And uh, I want to suggest it'll become obvious as we go along uh, that this is one really useful way of uh, processing emotion, both for ourselves and other people, and particularly in how we feel about following and sharing Jesus. So uh, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19, verses 1 to 6, contrast the expectations and desires in the example of John the Baptist. Verses 7 to 10, Jesus 
confronts his listeners. Uh, back in the day this was written and today confronts us with the contrast between our expectations and desires. And then verses 11 and 19 uh, give an encouragement and a warning to get this right in responding to Jesus. So firstly, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, we see that Jesus uh, was not the saviour John the Baptist expected, but he is the saviour John wanted. So the first couple of verses... After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So the John here is John the Baptist. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, John is described as the one who prepared Israel for the coming of God's kingdom. He told people to turn from evil, change their lives. He gave people a baptism, a symbolic washing to represent that. And he preached that a mighty leader, leader was coming to do that, to bring in God's kingdom, to sort people out, to sort the world out, to set things right. Uh, then John identified Jesus as that leader. And when John was arrested, so his ministry you know, couldn't continue, then Jesus began his public work, preaching and teaching, healing and doing other miracles and calling on people to trust him. So John was the person who got the nation ready to trust a saviour. And he identified Jesus as that saviour. And when John was arrested, Jesus stepped up to claim that role. But when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, uh, he sent a message from, to say, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, have I been wrong about you? <laughs> That's what he's checking with Jesus. Evidently, Jesus was not doing what John was expecting. Now, we don't know exactly what John was expecting, but we do know the kinds of things devout, enthusiastic Jews like John were expecting. Uh, God had chosen their nation to be in a special relationship with him. They'd repeatedly messed that up. So God had sent other nations to conquer them, but God had also promised to change them to be the kind, loving people he wanted them to be. And God had promised to free them from oppression and make them a blessing to the world. So a popular understanding of that was that God would free Israel from the Roman Empire and Israel would, one way or another, conquer the world and the nations would flourish under the kind, loving rule of Israel as Israel flourished under the kind, loving rule of God. And John had been telling people to turn back to being the kind, loving people God wanted them to be, so it seems likely he saw Jesus' job as sorting out Israel's situation in the world. Throwing off the rule of the Roman Empire would be a good start. But Jesus does not seem to be doing anything about that. He didn't gather an army. He didn't strategize with political leaders. He didn't confront the Romans. He was not the saviour John expected. But he was the saviour he wanted. Look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
So Jesus lists a bunch of examples of what he's doing. Uh, And with the exception of one or two of them, Matthew has recorded specific instances of all these things in chapters 8 to 9. So in terms of the way the book works, Matthew records Jesus doing this stuff and then records Jesus explicitly saying, this shows who I am and what I'm on about. So imagine uh, what life would be like in a world where Jesus doing this stuff was normal. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's not a complete list, but it is a life-changing list. If Jesus is claiming to be God's king and he's going to be running the world that way, well, that's going to make everything different. Obstacles to productive work, like being blind or lame, are going to get sorted out if Jesus is in charge. Obstacles to being in relationships and community, like having a contagious disease like leprosy, well, if Jesus is going to sort those things out, he's going to sort out our relationships and our communities. The greatest obstacle to life is death, but Jesus can just fix that. And the limitations and obstacles of poverty no longer oppress people. There's good news. So can you hear what Jesus was saying to John? Aren't these the things you are concerned about? What you want is people to flourish in relationship with God. Isn't that what I'm doing? I might not be doing the strategy you are expecting, but surely I am the saviour you want. I might not be changing things as fast as you were expecting, but surely I have the power of the salvation you want. So Jesus is not the saviour John expected, but he is the saviour John wants. I don't know if that kind of thing happens much uh, in the rest of life, but it is pretty much every romantic comedy. Right? The woman meets this guy. She feels usually repelled to some extent. Right? He is not the man she is looking for. He's not her type. He's not part of her world. He doesn't share her passion. He's just a jerk, you know, whatever the story is. But through the course of a series of serendipitous and usually humorous circumstances, she discovers that actually he is the man she wants. She goes from being repelled to attracted to this guy and they get together somehow. Can I suggest that often today, Jesus is not the saviour people expect, but he is the saviour we want. Now, I don't know what your expectations are exactly, but there is a popular expectation in our day and age that the world is getting better and better And although things happen somewhat randomly, the good things survive the process of history, so we believe in progress, and so we expect science and technology to find solutions to our problems. I was uh, surprised and not surprised a few weeks ago when I was in a shop, shopping for a gift for someone, and I picked up this little, I can't remember what it was, some kind of knick-knack thing, gadget, whatever, and the slogan of the company was, technology will save us. I just thought, wow. That's, that's, I'm not surprised people think that. I'm shocked that you're going to buy products that have that as a slogan. I, 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 that's, there we go. That's what people think. 
Well, in the age of web media, which constantly bombards us with the latest information we're hoping to discover, the gadgets are so new they haven't been made yet, and uh, it connects us with more new friends in a day than we can have conversations with in a lifetime, we can have this feeling that we don't have time for Jesus. He is old news. He is literally ancient history. Surely if he said anything good, it would be preserved through other people or Wikipedia. Uh, I mean, Jesus lived in the age before science. He didn't even have a computer. What could he possibly know? And yet, as much as we make progress, work satisfaction is still a struggle. People worry about the future of their work and what technology will do to that. Unemployment and underemployment have not gone away. Uh, we make massive strides in medicine, but ill health still gets in the way of everyone feeling like productive, contributing members of society. Jesus healed the blind and the lame to show his divine power to deal with the obstacles to satisfying work. He is working on a bigger plan to address our needs than what we are expecting scientific progress to do. Today, we're able to communicate with people around the world, wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And at the same time, we use that technology to find new ways to isolate people. Loneliness, depression and stress are not going away. They're just changing what they look like. Jesus healed contagious leprosy to show his divine power to deal with the obstacles to relationships and communities. He is dealing with our needs and wants in a bigger way than what we expect. Personally, I cannot see why we still have poverty in the world. I would really like to believe that poverty is a problem we can beat, I don't know, in the next couple of centuries at the latest. But let's be honest, I'm wealthy, white, well-educated, a heterosexual, cisgendered man living in a city, in a democracy, in the Western world. So although uh, poverty and marginalisation don't feel like very pressing problems to me, I don't think what I feel about that really matters, to be honest. I certainly don't want to be the one to tell the poor and marginalised that they don't need Jesus because we've nearly fixed those things. Uh, Jesus taught true, real, solid hope for the poor and marginalised not just the uh, questionable optimism of the wealthy. Probably the most popular way to deal with death in our culture is to ignore it. We, uh, we believe that we can't possibly beat death, and so God can't either. And so we just won't think about it. But just because death's the thing we acknowledge we can't beat... It doesn't mean we should ignore the evidence that God can. In fact, Jesus has. Jesus not only raised other people back to life and then they got old and, and died to show his power over death, but God the Father raised Jesus from death to life to live forever, never to die again. That shows that the renewal of life is in Jesus Christ. It shows that eternal life is found in trusting him. So Jesus may not be the saviour people expect, but it seems to me he is the saviour we want. 
So John the Baptist sent Jesus a message to the effect of, you aren't doing what I expect. Jesus responded by pointing at the evidence that he has the concern about and the power to deal with the issues he was really concerned about, what he really wanted, what he really needed. Well, that has implications both for how people respond to Jesus and whether to trust in him, and also, as we trust in Jesus and follow him, how we go on trusting him and following him. So let's look at what Jesus says to people about this. Look at chapter 11, verses 7 to 15. So first, let's just see what he says about John the Baptist. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So here Jesus addresses the crowd uh, that was in front of him at the time and he probes them, makes them think about why John the Baptist was popular with them, why they had been attracted to John the Baptist, why they'd gone out to hear John the Baptist's preaching. So was it because they're expecting to see the kind of thing you go out and see in the wilderness? Uh, such as a reed swayed by the wind. That's the kind of thing you'd find out in the kind of wild places. Uh, plants struggling to survive and sort of just getting by. Well, that wouldn't have been worth the trip. That wouldn't have been news. And John as a man was not like that. He wasn't just some guy eking out an existence, barely getting by. He was very impressive. And yet he was living out in the woods. So they, they went to see him because he was not what they expected. Were they expecting him to be like the people of influence that are normally people of influence? Uh, were they expecting to see a man dressed in fine clothes, some kind of normal political leader? Well, no. Those kind of people are the standard political leaders, kings, politicians, governors, those kind of people. You don't find those out in the wilderness you know, eating locusts and wearing crazy clothes. Why did they go to check out John? It was because he was different in a way that was interesting. He was not simply what they expected. So the fact that they went to check out this guy who didn't fit the normal mould, who was not what everyone expected, that shows they're looking for something more. They want something more than just the normal, everyday expected things. They went to check out John because they'd heard a rumour that maybe he's a prophet. And maybe, just maybe, God might do something unexpected. Why even bother going to the trouble of check it out? Because that's actually what they want. They want something more than just the ordinary that they expect. Now, I realise not everyone is like this. We vary in our personalities about how much we love this. But I would argue that distinguishing between what we expect and what we desire, that, that is true for everyone. And seeing in ourselves how our reactions to things work is significant for everyone. So imagine you've got a, a team of three people working in some organisation, some, you know, some uh, area, and the boss 
or the, you know, their manager, their line manager uh, leaves to go and have a job somewhere else. And so the organization's replacing the manager of the team. And all three of the members of the team apply for the position, but the position gets filled by an external candidate, someone from somewhere else. And uh, the person comes in and, and meets the people and senses that they're all quite resistant about the fact they've been given this unknown manager from elsewhere. And so the new person asks them, each individually, you know, I, I sense that you're not very happy about me being your new boss. Can I ask you, uh, th that's fine that you feel that way. Can I ask you, what's that about? Were you expecting someone else? Were you, were you hoping for someone better? You know, what is it? And so the first person, let's imagine, uh, says, yes, I was hoping for someone uh, who would just get on with the job and not be one of these touchy-feely teamwork leaders who asks these kinds of questions. And the second person says, actually, I was expecting that I would get the job. And the third person says, I was expecting that she would get the job, like the person who just said they were expecting to get the job. Now, they're all very, very different reasons for feeling superficially the same. And so understanding what's behind those feelings is going to make a massive difference, hopefully, if the person's you know, got some kind of competent management skills, to how they deal with those people and uh, build the team for them to be able to work together. Uh, the person who was expecting to get the job, they might just express that as, I wanted the job. Well, how, what did you think your chances were? I, I was, there was something that the uh, big boss said a week ago that made me think I had the job. Okay, so they're 100% certain they're getting the job. No wonder they feel as devastated as they do. It's nothing to do with the person who's the new manager, but the way it was set up. Um, what did they want? Like, why did they want the job? That's separate from their expectation, distinguishable from their expectation. Why did they want the job? It might be because they want their abilities to be more honoured. It might be because they want their hard work to be appreciated. It might be because they want more money, right? The desires that are behind those expectations, well, they're going to be significant, depending on what's going on. The person who was expecting that person to get the job, the other person on the team, uh, so they're, they're feeling a bit kind of distance from the process, it's not what they expected, but depending on how they felt about that, what they wanted, that's going to completely change what's going on. Did they want the other person to get a job, to get the job, because they thought they'd be a great manager? Did they want the person to get a, the job because they thought they'd be a great manager because they'd be their friend and not actually an effective manager? Was it because they thought they'd be a terrible manager and they were bracing themselves for having to cope with it? Like, what they want in that situation is very significant and distinct from what they expected to happen. So... When it comes to following Jesus and trusting him to look after us, it's important to distinguish between what we expect and what we want. For example, uh, it's just statistically typical, the most usual statistical course of life is for people to get into some kind of romantic, romantic relationship, a marriage or something like that, and have children. That's the most common thing that happens in the course of people's lives. And so, quite understandably, people expect that to be how their life goes. But it doesn't go that way for everyone. And so, in uh, talking to God about that and expressing what we want in that, it's really important to think about why we want that. 
Just because we expect it, it doesn't, that doesn't end the conversation with God. This is what I expected, God. You haven't done it. There's a problem. Well, what did I want that for? Does God want to satisfy those wants in other ways? If they're good wants. I mean, some people want to get married because it's what everyone does. Which, personally, if my wife told me that, I'd be heartbroken. But most of us, I think, want those kind of relationships for good reasons. And so there's more than one way to satisfy those wants in other relationships, uh, in other family connections, as part of God's family, through vocational choices, and, of course, when Jesus comes back with the perfect intimacy of knowing God face-to-face. There are expectations that our culture gives us within those relationships about sexuality. And the fact that many people want more than they expect in those relationships is evidenced by the uh, huge amount of internet traffic and revenue generated by pornography. Clearly, there are lots of people who think they want something more than they ever expect to get in their romantic relationships. Well, why is that? Where are those expectations coming from? What are the desires that are underneath those expectations? And so are they desires that God has given me, that are good desires, that I expect to be fulfilled in unrealistic ways? Or are they desires that have been twisted by sin to be bad desires? I had a surprise this last week in shopping for something that I was looking for. This is a change in illustration from the pornography, just so we're all clear. I was looking for just a little technological gadget thing. And I'd done a bit of research online. And uh, I couldn't seem to find what I was looking for. And I was thinking I would have to actually build something or modify something myself. And, uh, and so I went to the store that I thought would be the best place to get the components. And I thought the quickest way to tell them the components I want would be to tell them what I intended to build. And they said, well, I can give you those components. Or I've just got this one here on the shelf, you know, for even less money than buying the components. And I felt completely betrayed by the internet. Uh, that the internet had not, you know, I had actually looked on the website of this particular company and other places to find this product, and it didn't seem to exist. Uh, but I, what I'm glad I didn't do is I didn't spend hours and hours and hours and hours trying to research it, because it was only going to be, you know, a little amount of money or a little amount of time dealing with it. Uh, what, what you don't want to do in that situation is to be so uh, desperate to get the best deal that you put more time and energy into research than it would take you to just get the product all sorted out, yeah? And that's the case with following Jesus as well, yeah? Uh, uh, Jesus demonstrated that he is the saviour we, we want, that we need. He can deal with the big issues of life. And as we trust him and follow him, he does promise to satisfy our desires with good things, He gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit now so we personally, directly experience our relationship with God and intimacy with Him. He makes us part of God's family 
and part of local expressions of that, local churches, so we can have relationships and material, uh, share material blessings that God gives. And he also promises to come back one day and renew the world, renew us, so that we'll live forever uh, in abundance, peace and uh, happiness together. Uh, isn't that what you want? It may not be what people expect, but if our expectations are out of line with what God has promised, well, that could be quite frustrating. God does not promise to fulfill our expectations. He does promise to satisfy our desires. Well, Jesus has an encouragement and a warning for us about that. Look at uh, verses 11 to 18. So encouragement is 11 to 15, warning verses 16 to 18. So here's the encouragement. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so because John the Baptist was preparing for the immediate coming of Jesus to be, to be the saviour, the divine saviour, uh, God coming as a human, that means John was the ultimate prophet. Uh, uh, one way of saying it would be, uh, John had the best job. Right? It's not, I don't think it's talking about him, his value as an individual, as a person in himself, that he's more valuable than other people, but he got the top job. Uh, the way uh, John's role is uh, portrayed in the Old Testament is this is the person who is announcing that God is arriving personally in his world. As we go on with the story of Jesus, we find that's who he really is. He really is God and man. Uh, so, so John's got the job of announcing, here's God. That's the top job any human being could have in God's plans. And yet, uh, Jesus says, uh, the person who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Uh, John's question to Jesus shows that at that point there's some question of whether John himself is in the kingdom. Now, my expectation is that John got there. I mean, I don't have much more, I don't, can't show you any more evidence about that, uh, except that uh, there's other clues that we can look at later. But, but basically, we don't know at this point exactly where John is at with Jesus. He's certainly having doubts. Uh, but he and anyone else who turns and trusts Jesus as the saviour, is, enters into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so then, then they're in a whole different realm of God's plans, of God's work. They're not just getting ready for God to come. They're in a relationship with God. They're not just getting ready to follow God's ways. They are following God's ways by following Jesus. So if you are trusting Jesus as your saviour, even with very little understanding... Uh, if you are following Jesus as your king, even if you're confused about how to do that, 
your role in God's plans is greater than John the Baptist. If you've entered the kingdom of God, you've moved beyond this world getting ready for God and you've moved into having a relationship with God. You've moved into a whole new type of life. Or to put it another way, your life has a whole new meaning. You've left the world of wishing for something more and entered the world of Jesus really giving it to you. And Jesus is doing that for you regardless of how well you understand it. Though the better you understand it, the more you'll probably enjoy the process rather than being frustrated by wrong expectations. So that's an encouragement. That brings us to Jesus' warning, which is that a fool is never satisfied. Look at verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So that's a simple kind of illustration of people ne customers never being happy. You give them this option, no, 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 we want the other option. You give them the other option, no, 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 we want the other like, It's just an like a market illustration of the customer. It's the opposite of the customer is always right. This is the customer who's never happy, right? So then what does Jesus say about that? Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So here's this comparison to Jesus and John the Baptist. John was an ascetic. He deliberately lived in hardship and isolation. And some people said, well, that guy's crazy. That guy is just too over the top. I mean, you want to be devoted to God and you want to be religious but he's just taken it too far maybe he's possessed or something in contrast Jesus the son of man deliberately lived in the thick of community life he attended all the social events he mixed with anyone and so people assumed or tended to assume that he would do all the things the same and approve of the people he associated with he would associate and include anyone therefore he must be approving of everything and doing everything and so there were people who were rejecting both John the Baptist and Jesus but for opposite reasons right uh, John the Baptist you're being too weird therefore you're wrong Jesus, you're being too normal, therefore you're wrong. And Jesus is saying, if that's your system, you're stuffed. If you think following God's way means not being too weird and not being too normal, there's nothing left. A fool is never satisfied. The person who says, yeah, this is not what I'm expecting, so I can't go with that. Uh, the opposite of that's not what I'm expecting either. What you're saying is, I'm expecting me. Just do things my way and I'll be happy, God. Let's just do things my way. As long as I'm in charge and things are the way I'm expecting, any, any divergence from that, I'm not interested in. Well, if that's the case, you just haven't noticed that there is a difference between what you expect and what you really want. 
Uh, if a person wants to have an excuse to not listen to Jesus, if somebody wants to have an excuse to not listen to people telling them about Jesus, you can always have an excuse. Let me give you another example. Right? Uh, you tell me about Jesus, and I say, well, it seems to me that uh, you are living this out in your life. And so uh, it probably suits the way you live your life for you to believe this. So that, the fact that it suits you to believe this doesn't mean it suits me. So thank you, but no thank you. Or uh, if I think you don't look like you're living your life according to your principles, I can say, well, look, I don't think you're living your life according to these principles that you're telling me. So if even you are not willing to live life this way, then you're a hypocrite, and so I don't have to listen to you. I can give you many examples like this. right? If you want an excuse to not listen to someone telling about Jesus, there's always two alternatives, and you just pick the one that fits the situation best, and then you never have to listen. But if you play that game, you'll never be satisfied. The only thing that says is, I'm not willing to review my expectations. But that just means I'm not really aware of my desires. Uh, during the week, I listened to an interview with, uh, oh, I've lost his name, Neil Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi, I think it was. Um, who, uh, he's a university professor and also consults privately with organisations to help them with having emotionally healthy kind of organisational culture. Yeah. And uh, he said, one of the things that still happens regularly is he'll be meeting with senior management, having the initial meeting, explaining what he does and stuff, and someone in senior management will explain to him very clearly that uh, while emotions are good to have at home, they don't want emotions in the workplace. Emotions are bad at work. They don't make you productive. And in fact, I personally won't stand for it. And he'll say, you know, they'll thump the table and raise their voice and a bead of sweat will break out on their brow. And he'll think, right, well, they're very emotional about telling everyone not to be emotional at work. Uh, this is an area, I think, where we we can deceive ourselves more easily than we, we think we can. Uh, we can think that our expectations, what, what, we, what we're thinking is going to happen, we're expecting to happen, we can think that's what we really want when actually what we expect is kind of a version of what we want. And so as we uh, grow ourselves in following Jesus and as we share Jesus with other people, it's really, really helpful to notice the difference between what we expect and what we really want, because God does promise in Jesus to satisfy what we want. But I think it's almost never what we expect. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible grace in sending Jesus. Thank you that he has the power to change the world. Thank you also that he is concerned for us, and kind and loving and gracious, that he uh, wants us to flourish, he wants us to be productive, 
wants us to be in good relationships and satisfying communities. And he uh, wants us to be whole and happy and healthy. Uh, please help us to uh, trust your plan uh, rather than being frustrated uh, when it doesn't accord with our expectations. Thank you that you have our best interests at heart. Thank you that Jesus can uh, give us the things that we rightly want. And so please help us to look to him. Please help us to be unashamed of looking forward to when Jesus comes back and renews the world and gives eternal life. Uh, help us to uh, look forward to that with confidence and excitement. Help us also to make the most of being in a relationship with you now. Thank you that we know you as our Heavenly Father, that we uh, know your closeness by the Holy Spirit, and we know your unconditional love by Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you so much for putting us in your family together. Uh, thank you that we can share the many blessings you give us. And so uh, enjoy your care for us and your provision for us through each other. We pray that you'd help us to uh, share these things with the rest of the world as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.